Hey friend, welcome to the Alive Living Podcast. My name is Sarah Raquel Gauthier, and I'm excited for our journey together. We are all spiritual beings on a spiritual journey, but sometimes we may feel like we're stuck and not fully living. The good news is, is that Jesus came so that you could have life and life abundantly. So let's stop sleepwalking and start living alive one conversation at a time. How do you live alive? We've been talking about living in wholeness and living for purpose and what that looks like. And as we come to the last two episodes in season one, I thought we could return to this question. um, How do you live alive from a really practical and biblical perspective? And so we're going to walk through two parts uh, as we explore this question and using the Sermon on the Mount as a foundation for our conversation. Our church community, Living Stones here in Boston, has been working through the Sermon on the Mount for the past several weeks, and um, we're using it to really explore the question of what does growth look like and what does it mean to be part of God's family and how the Sermon on the Mount gives us a very practical understanding of what it means to not only come alive, but what it means to live alive. As something that I shared uh, a couple episodes ago was around this idea that the core message of the Gospel of Matthew is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what that means is that we don't have to wait until some far off eternity to begin to experience heaven. No, we can experience heaven now. I think so often when the Sermon on the Mount is taught, we read it and we're like, whoa, no, like there's no way that I could be that person. The centerpiece verse in the Sermon on the Mount is be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect. And when we read that, we think there is no way that I could ever be perfect. Really, when the Bible speaks of this idea of perfection, it's not about achieving or attaining to some a distant goal, some image of perfection. No, it's about wholeness. The word teleos is about wholeness. It's about completeness. It's a derivative, an idea of shalom, that we return back to our right standing and our right relationship with God. And so how do I live alive? I think the Sermon on the Mount can offer us some very practical and tangible ways to step into this question. But before we can even begin to unpack that question, we've got to do a little bit of a heart check and ask ourselves the question, do I really trust Jesus? Do I trust that Jesus as a rabbi, as a teacher, as Lord, can actually give me some practical tools and some practical understanding about what it looks like to live alive, what it looks like to experience a life of wholeness and peace and completion and shalom? Do I really trust that Jesus has the answers to this question? How do you know that you trust Jesus? Well, the Sermon on the Mount is um, set against this backdrop where Jesus, after he has been baptized and he begins um, his formal ministry, 
he goes into um, all, all of the land and he begins to preach in the land of Nazareth and the surrounding areas. He begins to preach and he preaches this message to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's his message, his core message. And as he begins his ministry, he begins to call certain disciples to himself. And there's this moment where he meets Peter and he meets Andrew and he meets John and James. And they are all four of these guys are fishermen. And he would invite them to follow him and not just be fishers anymore of fish, but actually to be fishers of men. And so they leave everything at his word, at his message to follow his way. And then... As he gathers his disciples to himself and with his message that he has, he begins to uh, proclaim the gospel and not only proclaim the gospel, but perform these these signs and wonders of incredible healing. The word tells us that he heals every disease and every affliction that were among the people. There were people who were oppressed by demons, people who were paralytics, people who were having seizures, people who had different kinds of pains and diseases, both emotional and physical and spiritual. And he's going throughout the entire region of Galilee teaching and healing people. And so what we see in Jesus is he is not only coming and bringing a word or a message of the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's not only inviting people to follow his way, but he's also doing these extraordinary works of healing. And so Uh, Before we even enter into the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showing us what the kingdom looks like. Jesus shows us before he tells us, but it's important, I think, to set it in that context because we remember that Jesus is showing us that he can be trusted, not just because of what he says, but what he does. And so do you trust Jesus? Do you trust that Jesus is who he says he is and that he can do what he says he does? I think there are three ways to know. How do you know that you trust Jesus? There are three ways that we, we, can, we can ask ourselves, do I really trust Jesus? One is, well, do you receive the word of Jesus? And Jesus says that heaven is at hand, that you can experience eternity now. Can you receive that word? Do you believe that that word is for now? I think the second thing that we can do to to ask ourselves the question, do I really trust Jesus, is do you follow the ways of Jesus? When Jesus gives certain paradigms and certain principles of what the kingdom looks like, am I really following the ways of Jesus? And a third question you can ask yourself is, or a third observation you can make about yourself to, to answer the question, do I really trust Jesus, is do I do the works that Jesus invites me to do? Do I do the works that Jesus invites me to do? And so before we can even begin to unpack the Sermon on the Mount, we have to really do a little bit of a heart check. Because if if you don't trust Jesus, then you're going to read the Sermon on the Mount and you're going to just read it as something that seems very aspirational. These, it sounds like a good thing, turn the other cheek. It sounds like a good thing to not be full of lust and anger. It sounds like a good thing that Jesus invites us to be light and salt. It sounds like a good thing that we don't have to be anxious for anything. But do I trust the one who is sharing this word? Do I trust Jesus as a good teacher, a good rabbi? Do I trust that he is not just some philosopher introducing um, ideas that are good in theory but not in practice? The Sermon on the Mount is a very practical way that we can live alive now. 
And the other thing that I want to say just to kind of like set it in context is to understand that the Sermon on the Mount, it's an entire sermon. It's meant to be read as an entire sermon. Uh, We've been going through this exercise uh, with our faith community around just reading the whole sermon together or listening to the whole sermon together. If you listen to it, 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 it takes about less than 15 minutes, about 12 to 15 minutes just to listen to the entire, the sermon in its entirety. One of the ways that I like to listen to um, the Bible is these artists called uh, Streetlights, and you can find them on Spotify. Um, they have an app that you can download, and Streetlights is cool because they basically they, they they read the word, they speak the word, but they speak it over kind of hip-hop beats, which is really cool. And so Streetlights, go look them up. Go listen to the Sermon on the Mount. But I, the point is, is that um, the, the Sermon on the Mount is designed to be read or listened to in its entirety. So we find it in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and it's 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 designed to be listened to in its entirety because just like any other sermon that you would listen to um, uh, on Sundays or on a podcast, it builds on itself. It is a well-crafted message that builds on itself. It's a progression of the life of a follower of Jesus. It's a progression of the child of God. And to me, when I think about it that way, and so much more powerful because it, it alleviates the pressure, I think, because sometimes we, we, we pull different parts of the Sermon on the Mount out of context and we, we try to apply those different pieces to our lives and our faith journey now. And it can be hard to do that if we haven't dealt with the other parts of the sermon. It's a progression. It builds on itself. And by the way, it's a progression that takes a lifetime. It is the stages of faith throughout our lifetime. And so when, when you come to the Sermon on the Mount, it really is an opportunity for you to think about where am I now? What are the things that are, as I'm reading through them, what's, what, what's hitting me? How is the Spirit really revealing and tapping different parts of, of my own soul and my own heart and my own mind and my own faith journey? And really allowing yourself to dwell in those spaces, but not just reading it in isolation. Looking at the whole picture and seeing the whole arc of what it means to be a child of God and a follower of Jesus. Our good rabbi who has good word for us as we journey together. So what I want to do to help you as you approach the Sermon on the Mount is really give you just some some frameworks so that you can approach the Sermon on the Mount in a way that will help you on your spiritual journey. I want to take a look at Matthew 5 today. And Matthew 5 begins and it's the, it's the Beatitudes. And I, I've mentioned before that Dallas Willard calls this um, the hopeless blessables. It's this list of hopeless blessables. And the Beatitudes are not really designed to be a, a list of how-tos. They're not uh, about what do you need to do to achieve blessing. It's blessed. You are blessed despite the fact that you are poor. You are blessed in spite of your being. They are not conditional blessings. They are the state of being for those who have been touched by heaven. So just imagine for a moment, I, 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 we talked a little bit about how Jesus is, is healing people right before he sits down and delivers this sermon. 
He shows them what heaven looks like before he tells them. But now as he enters into the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, it begins with the Beatitudes, the blessings. What does it look like that these people who have been poor, who are oppressed, who are, who are suffering all kinds of sicknesses and diseases, these people who mourn, these people who are just like you and I, and they are experiencing all kinds of difficulties in their life, and yet Jesus calls them blessed because they have been touched by heaven. Because heaven has touched you, you are blessed. You are blessed because Jesus knows you. He sees you. He sees your circumstance. He sees your pain. He sees your joy. He sees your sorrow. He sees your victories. He sees your dreams and your fears. And because of that, you are blessed because you are seen by God who sent his son to be near to you. You're blessed. And then the section I really want to kind of dig into a little bit more deeply is when he says that you are salt and light. We're actually going to read that together. So why don't you go to Matthew chapter 5 and beginning of verse 13 and 14 and 15. We'll read those. Matthew chapter 5 verse 13 through 15. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people hide a light uh, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house in the same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven remember i asked you the question do you trust jesus do you trust jesus What is so powerful, I think, about these particular verses is that even if you don't know the answer to that question yet of whether you trust Jesus, here, Jesus is entrusting the hopeless blessables with the kingdom of God. Jesus is entrusting people who mourn, people who thirst for righteousness, people who are poor, people who are meek. He's trusting his kingdom to the least of these, to these hopeless blessables. He's saying, you are salt. You are light. He is giving them a role and responsibility. He is saying to us that with no qualifications, with no expectations, having done nothing, you are the only ones who can actually bring my kingdom, my heavens to pass. You are the only ones who can make the world work in wholeness. You're the only ones who can bring shalom into the world. What's so beautiful about that, I, I love Jesus because Jesus, man, he tr- entrusts us before we trust him oftentimes. I think this is what we see with the disciples, this motley crew of misfits that Jesus calls to himself, people who were fishermen, people who were political um, activists, people who were tax collectors. He entrusts them with the kingdom of God. These would be the future leaders of the church, people who had no business <laughs> being entrusted with that kind of responsibility. And yet, Jesus calls them salt. Jesus calls them light. And so too with you and I, with no qualifications at all, you are the one that is chosen to bring heaven onto earth. You are the one that is chosen to bring the kingdom of God onto earth. And you're the only ones who could do it. When we were talking about this particular section, 
as a church community, we were talking about how it almost seems as if, not that Jesus needs us to do anything, but it almost seems as if Jesus is inviting us to do something that we have no business doing. That Jesus is inviting us to be part of something, to invest our lives in something that far outweighs and is far greater than anything that we could ever presume to do on our own. That you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its salt, its taste, how shall its saltiness be result, re- restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a light on a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are being entrusted to preserve this world. We are being entrusted to be light that shines before others so that they can see the glory of God. We're being entrusted for something, to be honest, that is so far outside of what we could ever do in our own strength and our own qualifications. And yet it is the hopeless blessables like you and I that are entrusted to steward and to to be um, instruments of the kingdom of God. I love it. Jesus goes on to say in, in, in verses 17 through 20, he says, Matthew chapter five, verse 17, it says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus comes to fulfill the law and the prophets. I think oftentimes when we read this section, we're like, okay, well, now that Jesus came to fulfill the law and fulfill the prophets, then the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. But what Jesus is really saying here is that the the scribes and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they had basically twisted so much of the, the instructions that God had given his people. And they twisted the laws in order to oppress people through their own religious and social order that really uh, elevated only certain humans could access God. Only certain humans could be in possession of the keys to the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is doing here, he is basically dumping them of their privileged positions. He's dumping them of, of, of what they believe that has given them certain access to the kingdom of God. And he's saying, no, all have access to the kingdom of heaven. You don't have to attain to certain rules and regulations. Don't use my law and my prophecy to oppress people. No, use it as a source that brings freedom. And so Jesus would raise up ordinary people with no qualifications to be in divine fellowship by faith in Jesus. So our faith in Jesus allows us to have access to to the kingdom of God in a way that it's not about uh, achieving certain goals or achieving certain rules and certain checklists. No, it's, it's about accessing the freedom that comes when we step in. And when we begin to understand that what, what the, the righteousness that God is talking about here, that Jesus is talking about here, is right standing before God. 
it's a new humanity. It's a new opportunity that we as children of God begin to be able to tap into. I love the way that Jesus sets this first part of chapter five off because it's so much about our being, not our doing. Jesus reminds us that our identity, who we are as children of God, as followers and students of Rabbi Jesus is blessed. And because we have been touched by heaven, we are entrusted to bring heaven on earth as salt and light. And it's not something that's relegated to the teachers of the law or the Pharisees. It's not that only they can access the kingdom of heaven. No, you and I as ordinary people can access the kingdom of heavens. We can bring heaven on earth. And so then the second part of chapter five really goes into some six different specific examples and illustrations that Jesus uses to talk about a kingdom heart. And I won't go into depth into all of these different um, illustrations, but again, remember, Jesus is, is talking to real people. This is set against a backdrop of the ways that Jesus has just shown them what the kingdom of heaven looks like healings and people who were oppressed and people who were dealing with all kinds of emotional pain and struggles and he has just brought a healing he has shown them what healing looks like and now he will give six different illustrations that he he offers them to to show them what it means and what it looks like to be good who is really good in the kingdom of god What does it mean to be a good person? What does goodness look like? And he uses six different illustrations to talk about that. He uses anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and love for your enemies. And these six different, they're illustrations, so they're not exhaustive. They're examples. Um, Think of them as, you know, object lessons that Jesus is using. And he uses this cadence of, you have heard it said, and then he talks about, what the, what the law was, what the old way of doing good was. And then he says, but I say, and he offers a new way of being good. Now, goodness is a question. What does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be a good person? It's a question that we've been asking ourselves throughout all of history, throughout all of the millennia. It's a question that we all come back to. I am um, a big fan of the show, The Good Place um, on Netflix. And, um, I've never seen The Good Place. It's it's basically this the story of uh, this character Ellen Shalstrop, and she Eleanor Shalstrop. She um, finds herself in in the afterlife, some version of the afterlife, and it's it's she finds herself in the good place. But what she comes to realize is that she's actually there by mistake. And so there's this architect character Michael, and he's the architect. He's like the the designer of the new place of the good place. Eleanor r- realizes that she's not the only one that's there by mistake that there are other people who are there by mistake as well but she wants to do everything in her power to basically um shed her her old way of living and her old life to step into the new way of living so that she can stay in the good place anyway that this is a brief synopsis there's a ton of stuff that happens um and the good place even though it's a sitcom and it's funny it it actually is is a really deep look at what it looks like to what does it mean to be a good person and so um there's there's a character that um Chidi he's a professor and he's a philosophy professor and really helps her to unpack this question helps Eleanor to unpack this question and so we we are we are intrigued as a as a, as a human species about what does it mean to be a good person 
And I think part of our intrigue about that is that when God created us, after God creates us, the first thing that he says when he's created humanity and the image and likeness, um, he says, this is very good. We were created as very good. That's the first word that God speaks over is that you are very good in your creation. So it's no surprise to me that we wonder what does it mean to be a good person? And so the idea of goodness is shaped by this, this, this Greek word in Greek culture and ancient Greek culture, this word of diokinuse. And diokinuse is the word that is used for good. But there are different um, contexts for good. So just like we have words that they mean different things depending on the culture and the context that we're in, for the ancient Greek culture they had certain understandings of diokinuse. What does it mean to be good? For Plato, goodness was about justice. So doing good was about justice, that you were just with your neighbor, that you were just with your brother, and that you were just with your family members, that there was justice towards other people. Goodness was about, was about justice. For Aristotle, goodness was about virtue and um, attaining to certain values and so that your life was marked by these certain ways of being. And so it was about virtue. What's interesting about um, ancient philosophers over time like Plato and Aristotle and many others is that in order to be a good person, you had to do good. You either lived a virtuous life, you lived according to certain principles and certain values, or you do good through justice. But Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly in this second half of Matthew chapter 5, um, is bringing back this idea of goodness, but he's speaking of goodness in terms of righteousness. We read earlier in Matthew chapter 5, it says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of God. So uh, Jesus there is introducing this idea of diokinuse, goodness. What does goodness look like in the kingdom of God? And for Jesus, goodness in the kingdom of God is not about doing good, but it's about being good. And as you will become good, then you will do good. So Jesus here in this second half of Matthew chapter 5 is flipping the script. He's not saying do good to be good. He's saying if you will be good, then you will do good. Jesus does a heart check here. He's showing us what a kingdom heart looks like, what a kingdom being, what a kingdom soul looks like. He reminds us that we are created as very good, but because of our sinfulness, sin cuts us off. Sin cuts off our capacity to be the fullness of the very goodness that God called us when we were created. And so the only way that we can step into this righteousness, this diokinuse, is through the redemptive act of Jesus on the cross. We read in 2 Corinthians that he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ. The righteousness of God in Christ is this idea of diokinuse. It's not about doing good, it's about being good. But we can only be good when we've received the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so, so many people will, will ask me questions and will, will talk about, well, Sarah, like, I'm a good person, so of course I'm going to get into heaven. Of course I'm going to be able to uh, have eternity. And the sad thing about that 
is that doing good doesn't necessarily mean that we are good. It doesn't mean that we are right before God. We have to receive and accept the salvation and the redemptive act of Jesus, the one who knew no sin, who became sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ. Doing good doesn't mean that we are righteous. It doesn't mean that we are good. But in Jesus, and we begin to walk under the the frameworks of the kingdom of God, then we begin to discover how sweet and how good it is that Jesus' finished work on the cross and my receiving of that finished work on the cross means that my identity is in Christ. That when God looks at me, God looks at me through his son and he says, you are very good once more. I'm redeeming you once more. You are being restored once more. You are being returned to wholeness once more. And so for the people that Jesus is talking about, they had this old diokinuse or this old way of looking at goodness that if they did good, then they would be good. They followed the ideas of Plato, Plato and Aristotle around goodness is about what you do. But Jesus says, flips that script and he says, no, goodness is about who you are. It's about your heart. And so, so much of the second half of Matthew chapter five is looking at the heart. It's an assessment of, of my heart and what's going on on the inside and who am I on the inside? Because so much, our actions don't just emerge from, from nothing. Our actions always reveal what's in our hearts. We produce fruit in our lives based on the cultivation of our inner worlds. And what Jesus wants to do in this particular second half is to help us to produce good fruit through a good heart. And so Jesus uses these six illustrations of anger and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation and love for your enemies, not as a, as a complete list of all the ways that we need to work through our, our heart issues but as examples to give us to begin to explore what is this kingdom, Diokonise, what does the kingdom goodness look like? What does a kingdom heart look like? And so the first section is, is, around, is around anger. It talks about, you've heard it said that you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Basically, the old way of doing good was basically don't murder. Don't murder, and then you'll be a good person. If you do good by not murdering, you'll be a good person. That's what their thinking was. That Jesus is introducing a very different way of thinking. He talks about, no, I want you to have a desire to be of help. I don't want you to allow anger to build up in your heart. I don't want you to allow contempt or resentment to be built up in your heart. And so there's this instruction. This is where we get this instruction about like if you're angry with your your brother, your sister, you're angry with someone or contempt or resentment has built up in your heart. If you come and you bring a gift of of an offering to the altar, leave it there and go resolve things with your accuser. Go resolve things with your friend. Go resolve things before you come and bring that offering. This is a heart issue that Jesus is talking about. He's like, resolve that anger that's in your heart. Resolve that resentment that's in your heart. And I got to tell you, when I first started... um, and I was studying the Sermon on the Mount back in December in preparation for, for walking through it with our church community. 
I, I'm not, I'm not really an angry person. It's not something like I don't, I don't get easily angered. Anger is not something in particular that I struggle with, but something that I do struggle with, um, is resentment. And I think a part of that has to do with my personality type. Um, in the, if you know anything about the Enneagram model, I, um, have a lot of high functioning towards the Enneagram two, which is the helper. And so I, I just, I will love you unconditionally. I will show up. I will be there. Uh, but when I'm an un- unhealthy, at times, a lot of that can turn into resentment in me. And I can get really, oh, I just feel so angry at people, especially if, if like they were supposed to follow through with something and they don't follow through with that. Oh, and it's something that eats at me. And so when I was reading through this section, I was like, man, like I, I, I've never murdered anybody. Uh, anger is not really something I struggle with, but I do struggle with this, this resentment when I've got something against someone, I let it fester for maybe longer than I should let it fester inside of me without allowing myself to, to confront that person or share with that person and say, Hey man, like this thing that you did, this really hurt me. Like I, I will hold that in me for a real long time. And so as I walk through this, this particular section, um, and I'm reading this I'm realizing wow this is such a heart thing and it's about the being of my heart and not necessarily the doing like I can bring my offerings and I can be a continue to be a nice person and and do good things for you but if I let resentment build up in my heart then I'm not really operating from a kingdom heart and so this particular section um, really hit me hard. And then I, and I'm still dwelling on it. I haven't even moved on to the other sections. But see, this is what Sermon on the Mount does because it's a progression. Because it's walking us through the stages of our life with Christ and our journey with Jesus. It's like one section will hit you and you're like, wow, well, I got to let this. All right, Holy Spirit, you got to do a work in me. You got to do a work in my heart. Not so that I can do good to become good, but I, so that I can become good so that I will do good. So that doing good will become like second nature to me. Doing good will become my automatic response. I will produce good fruit because the inner world of my heart has been cultivated in a way that God has been doing a good work. And so uh, the next sections go on lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, love for your enemies. I'm not going to go in depth into those sections. Just wanted to give you the example um, of resentment for me and anger in that. So that you can begin to allow the spirit to speak to you. But again, this section, second half, is really thinking about what is what does goodness and look like in the kingdom of God? What does righteousness look like for a follower of Christ? And it's about cultivating a kingdom heart. It's about becoming good so that you can do good. And this is the section that ends in verse 48. It says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And again, that's not about... Um, attaining to some imaginary mythical view of perfection. We talked about the myth of perfection uh, on one of the episodes, and it's not about attaining to some mythological perfection. This is about you must be whole as your heavenly father is whole. You can experience shalom. You can live alive. That's the encouragement of this verse is that as you begin to recognize that you are blessed because the heavens have touched you, that you're entrusted to be salt and light because Jesus wants you to be part of ushering in the kingdom of God, then that you can cultivate a kingdom heart where you become good and then you begin to do good. That's what is progress. It's progress. It's progress towards wholeness. It's progress towards shalom. 
And so with that, we'll we'll pick up on the rest of the second half of, of the Sermon on the Mount in our next episode. But what I want to encourage you to do um, is take some time to listen to the Sermon on the Mount. Again, if you listen to it, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it'll take you about 15 minutes. Um, and you can just listen to it and just allow the Holy Spirit to, to speak to you and to resonate and dwell where you need to dwell. And don't get hung up on the fact that, like, maybe you don't know how to turn the other cheek yet. You know what? That's okay. It's progress. You're working through section by section, and it comes in stages. And so much of the spiritual life, it's not linear. It works itself in circles and spirals and stages and seasons. And you're going to find yourself coming back and circling back around. Like, oh, we've been here before. But what the goal is and the, the desire is, is that, yeah, you might come back to a certain certain area of your life. You're like, man, I thought we worked this out. I thought, God, I thought we, we had already grown in this area. But what you're going to see is like you're looking at that area from a different perspective. And so it's about making that making that journey and, and, and progressing little by little by little until we attain to the full wholeness with Christ. And so let me pray for us. Um, as we close out this time together. And, and again, I want to encourage you. Um, you can live an alive life. You can live an alive life. And the Sermon on the Mount is a really practical way to begin to think about what are the practical ways and what are the ways that the, is the Holy Spirit speaking to you? What are the things that oh, I'm really dwelling in this area? And, and just allow the Spirit to speak. I, I promise you that if you will take time to listen, God is speaking. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time that we've begin um, that we've been able to share together. Thank you because you're faithful, and when you say the kingdom of heaven is at hand, you mean it. You mean it. You are you are trustworthy. We can access heaven now. God, I thank you because when we receive you as our Lord and our Savior, we can experience heaven on earth now. Our eternity begins when we receive you. We begin to walk with you and we begin to progress with you. And I pray, God, that you would give us a desire to be with you. Give us a desire to become like you. Give us a desire to do the works that you did. Help us to grow in our trust of you. To know, Jesus, that you're a good rabbi, that you're a good teacher. And we want to be good students who are learning with you. And I just pray, God, that you would allow the, the Holy Spirit to speak to each and every one of us as we listen to the Sermon on the Mount this week and as we allow it to just wash over us and the, the areas that we need to dwell in, the things in our lives that we need to expose to you so that we can grow in. God, I pray that we would go into those spaces together and know that we can live a life with you, that we can experience life and life abundantly. Thank you, God, for sending your son, Jesus. And thank you, Jesus, for preaching this sermon so that we could begin to experience what does it look like to, to become the good people that you made us as, the very good people that when you created us, you said we were very good. And you give us the tools and you give us the practices so that we can return once again to that wholeness. So we love you, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Hey, friend. Thanks for walking with me on the journey today. Before you go, I want to invite you to do three easy things so that we can continue to walk together. First, subscribe to the podcast. Second, share the podcast with a friend. And third, head on over to my website, sarahrgotier.com, where you can download your free field guide with a practical exercise that will support you towards a live living. Let's continue building one another up to live alive, one conversation at a time.